0: for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing my brother, Charles Blow, and talking about his new book, The Devil You Know. But before I get to Charles Blow, I wanted to talk about the budget reconciliation process. Now, don't fall asleep and don't fast forward. This is important. It's something you'll probably be hearing a lot about and you've probably heard a lot about lately. We want to talk about how it works and how it's going to get more vaccines in the streets and those stimulus checks in our pockets. So, in case you missed it, this past Tuesday, the Senate voted to advance a budget resolution that would support President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. On Wednesday, the House approved its budget resolution measure. What this does is it instructs each of the 11 policymaking committees in Congress to draft up laws implementing President Biden's proposal. So that's $1,400 stimulus checks. That's expanded unemployment insurance. That's money for more vaccines. That's over $350 billion for state and local governments. That's $130 billion to safely reopen schools. That's a $3,000 tax credit per child up to age 17 and a $3,600 tax credit per child under age six. That's a $15 minimum wage. All in, that's checks and pockets, shots and arms, and money for state and local government services that we rely on. And we'll only need 51 votes to do it. So we don't need the Republicans to do anything anymore. What's important to note here is that the budget reconciliation process can be used for everything. And it can be used for the measures described above because these are matters directly pertaining to the budget. How much money the federal government brings in and how much money it pays out. So as much as I'd like to put police reform, voting rights, expanding the courts, D.C. statehood, legalizing marijuana and an infrastructure package in here, budget reconciliation isn't the tool for that. We need to eliminate the filibuster, as we talked about before. But that's a whole nother conversation and one we'll have again on this show very soon. So help is on the way and we're getting the help we need from President Biden and Vice President Harris and the Democrats we elected. If the Republicans want to join that's fine. But what we won't do is let Republicans hold progress hostage any longer. And that's that on that. Now on to the show with my brother, Charles Blow. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. And welcome to another episode of the Bukari Sellers Podcast here on The Ringer and Spotify. I have my brother with me, good friend. He actually has the background, The Devil You Know, a new book out, none other than the brilliant Charles Blow. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. You know, I start each one of my episodes with uh, our guest, and we attempt to have them walk us through the arc of their career. A lot of individuals just see you on TV they know your work with the times they see you're a brilliant author but they don't know how you ended up where you are and you began your career in journalism as a graphic uh and design editor but you transitioned into editorial work so walk us through the arc of your journalism career from when you finished grambling to what's now been over two decades at the times
2: well it's 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 out of writing into art and back into writing so (laughs) i i uh I've been a newspaper person my whole life. I mean, I, I started a high school newspaper. I used to write letters to the editor when I was in high school to the local newspaper, and they would publish some of them. And I, I became the uh, editor of my college newspaper. And I got an internship, though, in graphic design in, in while I was in college, because I majored in visual communications, because, and do not take this, uh, as something you should do, young people. I majored <laughs> in visual communications because I knew I, I thought I could do it, keep my scholarship, and go to all the parties. So, because I thought I was going to go to law school anyway, it didn't matter. And I ended up stick, sticking with journalism and I had this concentration of visual communication. So I did that. And so I kind of fell into this. uh And what I, I figured am I, if I'm in it, I'm going to do it as best as anybody's ever done it. And that's what I tried to do. And I became graphics director of the New York Times. And uh, I did that for a very long time. We won a lot of awards. And I it got to the point where I was, I'd done it for so long. I, and we'd won everything I thought we could win. And I thought, well, what do you do now? Like, you just try to win the same thing again? Or what do you do? <laughs> and I ended up, the art director at National Geographic was leaving his job. He called me on the phone. I never met this man in person. He says, I'm leaving his job. There's only one person I wanted to have it, and it's you do you want it? And I said, of course. And so I became the art director of National Geographic magazine, but I was commuting from Brooklyn to DC.
0: That's not a commute. That's that's a little bit longer than a commute.
2: No, <laughs> every day. Oh my I flew goodness. to work in the morning and flew home. Nice. They wanted me to do it so badly. They paid for the flight. It's crazy. Just insanity. Uh, and I just said, my body can't do this. And the times wanted me to come back and we, they said, you know, if you came back, what would you do? I said, I had no idea. I thought about it for a while. And I knew that they were doing these things called, they, they called op charts. And I knew because I was, the, used to be the graphics director that they were paying freelance every time they did. I said, just cobble together that money you're paying, make a salary. I'll do these things on the staff you. solve your problem, solves my problem, we have fine. Hmm. And when I went to talk to the editorial board editor, he's told, you know, he says, I knew I had known Andy forever. And Uh, so it wasn't really an interview. And he said, okay, everybody likes this. So are you going to, what are we going to call you? And I said something. He said, no, we'll just call you a columnist. He says, are you going to introduce the column with some word, with some writing? I said, I guess. He says, well, about 400 words. I said, I guess. I hadn't, no, I didn't know what 400 words was going to mean. And he said, okay, fine. And he took a call. He shooed me out of the office. I realized when I went downstairs that I had just made a columnist at the New York Times. And I was going to have to learn to write on the job.
0: So, but let's talk about that because you've been the consistent black voice in the Times op-ed page for a long time. And I wrote about this in my book, but I want to hear about how much of your writing style, your politics and your sensibility has been shaped by coming of age as a black man in the deep South. Talk about that experience and how that can shape anyone, but particularly how it shapes your writing and your orientation towards the topics you write about. Right. So
2: when I first arrived, Bob Herbert was there, who's a hero of mine, but he left soon after. Uh, so he was the first black columnist. Then it was just me. And people would often say to me, like, you're the only black columnist at the New York Times. And I said, that's true. But I'm also the only southerner who's a columnist.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: yes. And I'm also the only one who grew up poor. I'm also the only one who ever went to a black school. And all of that stuff informs the sound uh, of the, and rhythm of the writing as much as anything else you know because i just hadn't done it and i had to kind of learn figure out what my voice was in that space there's a huge impulse within you to try to blend in and sound like you belong in that space so i felt that in the very beginning that i was kind of aching to try to make sure that it sounded like i belong there and that didn't sound like me and one of the other comments once said that uh that the colors should be like an orchestra. Everybody's playing a different instrument, but together it sounds It mm-hmm. make the music. And I realized that, it, you know, my my instrument was going to be a banjo. Like I, I, I am a Southern boy and I had to remember that and honor that and believe that. And when I was writing, I had to imagine I was talking to the old people that, that I grew up around. How would I explain it to them? What would the mm-hmm. metaphor be? And that, that, was how I realized what my actual voice was. And then it became comfortable and easier to write.
0: Mm. So let's talk The Devil You Know. Give me the Cliff Notes version. I I read it. It's a great book, but the Cliff Notes version for listeners of what it's about. And then the most important thing, why did you decide to write it?
2: All right. So the book is a persuasive argument trying to give as many Black people as possible to reverse the Great Migration, the return from uh, cities that people migrated to uh, during the Great Migration back to the South, where after the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black. That was Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina. Another three were within four percentage points. Every Southern state had large percentages of Black people with the understanding that you should do it with political intentionality. You have a lot of reasons, Uh, but with political intentionality, because if if people had not migrated and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had still passed, you would control. Uh, you could control or uh, be the controlling interest in it as many as fourteen senators. You could uh, yeah. control up to more electoral college votes than California and New York State combined. You wouldn't have had a, a if black people voted the same way they vote today. You wouldn't have had a Republican um, president in the last fifty years, and that would have completely reshaped the court. Mm. That's what power looks like. What we're doing now is pleading for power
0: yeah so I mean uh, on another point one of the things that stuck out to me one of the things I chuckled about not at my head but chuckled you were hard on this past summer's protest describing them as quote social justice Coachella and a systemic racism Woodstock I love I, also, I always love your uh the way that you uh the way that your shade tree grows with such intentionality it's <laughs> and it's 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 perfect it fits perfectly it made me think. Uh, now, that some people may think it's harsh. I think it's very well earned. Uh, so help us understand what you're trying to get us to see and where you think this past summer's resistance fell short.
2: Uh, listen, a lot of people poured into the street. vast majority of those people were white, not black. There were even more Hispanic people, according to polling, than there were black people. And it looked like something different than other marches were. Uh, we saw a, a surge in in uh, support for Black Lives Matter. We saw books about race and overcoming racism, race to the top of the bestsellers list. It looked like something different, but what that was happening at this very same time that the economy was shut down, schools were shut down, people were robbed of rights of passage. You couldn't go anywhere. And all of a sudden there was this thing you could do and get out of the house and you could be with other people and no one would say you're violating the law or you're violating the rules. And people took advantage of that. So two things converged. But soon after we were allowed to go back to business, and and some schools reopened, and some normal activity was restarted. When you look at the polls, the support for Black Lives Matter among white people starts to go right back to where it used to be. Mm. Now I don't know what how history will judge it, but that tells me that that's kind of a flash in the pan. Now were there some white people? Hispanic people, even Black people who saw some sort of conversion during that period, I am sure that there were. And I'm happy for them that they had that experience. And I think that everyone needs to grow out of racism. It's just good for you because racism is, is ignorant. But my liberation or the liberation of Black people in general can never be subject to whether or not you are growing in this season or not.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you this. Is Going back to your... Uh, kind of to your manifesto that you're writing and your talk about political intentionality, political power. Does Georgia prove your point?
2: It was it was so perfect. I couldn't have imagined it. And I moved to Georgia last January. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't live in New York no more? And I have a house there. My daughter lives there, but I live in Georgia.
0: I live in Atlanta. You live in Atlanta? Man, There's- I had no idea. I'm in Atlanta often. I'm knocking on your door. Because y'all ain't got, y'all don't have a pandemic in Atlanta. That's the way y'all I mean, act.
2: Don't, don't get me started. It's the whole situation. <laughs> uh, but no, I moved to Atlanta. I had no clue. I, I you know, I, I had my three cities that I chose among the cities that I was encouraged people to move to that I thought were on my list. Atlanta won out and I packed my things and I moved. And I just, I could not have, I, when I was wrote the book proposal like three years, almost three years ago. I couldn't have imagined that this was going to happen. I, when I moved, I couldn't have imagined that it was going to happen. But of course, Georgia becomes proof and concept for the, for the whole proposition. Yeah. It is the first time in American history that black people were the majority of the coalition that elects a U.S. senator, ever, hmm. ever. It is the first time since Reconstruction that black people are the majority of the coalition that, that, that delivers a state.
0: You know, I think people have a hard time understanding that because I remind folk when I ran in 2014, I talk about it on the show a lot, that I was attempting to become the first black elected statewide in South Carolina since Reconstruction. And in 1876, there were two black folk who were running against each other. And people have a hard time juxtaposing and understanding that amount of time and the power black folk once had versus the power we don't have anymore.
2: Right. Uh, Absolutely. I, th- I think we've gotten, we've been estranged from that bulk power where it's you. You're not, you're not the extra ten yeah. percent. We've gotten so used to white people disagreed, and they both they split about 50-50 So we can come in with our five and ten and fifteen percent and make and push difference.
0: it and push oh, it over they the. They
2: excite us. Ooh, you don't want the races. Ooh, you get you. We need your ten percent, and and then, Lord forbid. Nine out of 10 of us and not 10 out of 10 of us vote the way you want us to. And all of a sudden, what is wrong with that five or 10 or 15 percent of black people or black men or whatever? And I'm looking at you thinking Half of you vote the other way every time.
0: (laughs) That's so true. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: So let, let me talk, You you went in detail in this book I've read two great books over the past weekend or so. One is, of course, The Devil You Know. The other is Cicely Tyson, just as I am, both guests of the show. Cicely Tyson, shout out. But you actually went into detail about policy in your book, which is where I, you know, I fall in love with those pages and went back and read them. And you talk about DOJ funding programs. In particular, you talk about the, how do you pronounce it? B Y R N E. How do you pronounce that? Burn grants. The burn grants, yes. While not completely awful, fund the type of policing practices that lead to the kind of over-policing and creates the opportunities for police violence. Talk about how DOJ funding could be a tool for reform, but why it often falls short in terms of actually reforming policing.
2: Well, the Burn Grants is a fascinating story because it illustrates how both Republicans and Democrats fail Black people on the issue of mass incarceration and over-policing. You know, so Byrne is this uh, New York police officer. He's killed on the job. It's like a hit job. Like they 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 target this 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 young man, kill him, and he becomes the cause celeb among police officers about why you have to crack down on violence and increase enforcement of drug laws. And so Bush goes and lists this guy up. And this is this is during a time where the caucus gets clobbered on the mm-hmm. issue of being soft on crime. And Bill Clinton looks at that and Democrats in general look at that and say, we will never allow ourselves to be labeled as soft on crime again. Uh, and Clinton becomes the first person to actually win the major endorsements of the of police unions. And that kind of nullifies that. And so what you had was a bunch of liberal politicians wanting to go to liberal cities and stand next to police chiefs, and those people clap for them and say, this person's a friend of ours. So the burn itself provided funding to fight the drug war. One thing that it did was provide for overtime. But this is how uh, pernicious the policing system is in America. What they would end up doing is, this is uh, a professor described uh, this for me in, in New York. A lot of officers would wait to the end of their shifts to make these arrests. Mm. Good, bad arrest or whatever. Because you had to stay with the body until it was processed. Mm. That could be all day. That could be 24 hours. But that, staying with the body, you're just, you just in the precinct. You're not out in danger. You're not uncomfortable. You're not in the weather. You're waiting for the body to be processed. All that time you're making overtime.
1: Hmm.
2: Right. Uh, And New York City was so bad that they, you know, uh, as this professor would put it, having a small amount of marijuana, like one joint, wasn't even a crime. It was uh, it was called a violation, like getting a parking ticket. Yeah. They wanted to get the kids because kids are clean. They're not bums. They're not old people. They're not sick. They don't have whatever. They're clean. They're going to have to stay with this person for 24 hours. They want a clean body. They would say to some kid, if you can have something in your pocket, you better show me. Now, when it's, in, when it's in your pocket, still a violation. Exposed in public view is the language makes it a crime.
0: So when they took it out, they can. The
2: moment kids. they tell this kid, okay. if, I have, if I find a young going to be in real trouble, and they move it out of their pocket and into public view, it moves from violation to crime. So this whole architecture around the burn grants was fueling the targeting of these young kids and the pushing of them into real criminal records.
0: Records without criminal behavior or no, intent. No,
2: no. So, and, and and using marijuana that literally at the same rates as white people. Hmm. Right. And so for whatever reason, Bush Jr. kind of starved that burn grant program. But when Obama was running, he said, I'm going to restore the funding for the burn grants. And then when he said that, my ears perked up like, does he not know what the, they're using this money for? I don't understand what this could be about. And in fact, when they signed, what was it? Uh, was it? What they called the stimulus package or what it was. Uh, they increased the funding by 12 fold. Those kinds of policies, you have to look at that and go, we can't be subjected to this.
0: Correct. That's why we have to have a DOJ that works. That's why so many yes. people were focused on, yes. on the appointment of Merrick Garland, because there isn't that relationship with. Our people, and for for better or for worse, I mean, we just don't know him. I mean, there there's nothing about Merrick Garland that we know. Um, yeah. And I think that that when you talk about that, this was a very so. Whenever you guys pick up the devil, you know, make sure that you 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 dig into this part on uh, DOJ funding tools and mechanisms. Uh, you go hard on black activists in your book. Something you describe as quote becoming an exercise in elitism, end quote. In quote, succumbing to a certain monotony of urbanity and arrogance. End quote. Where the end game is being anointed by white universities and donors. Where none of this is actual a plan for Black power. Side note: I agree with you. (laughs) Don't name names, but who are you talking about here? And how did you arrive at this conclusion around Black activism? That's not everybody, right? So
2: that—that is, yeah, right, right. So there, but, but there are, you know, there are people who are doing God's work because either they're on the educational side and they have the patience to continue to try to, you know, lure people out of caves and into the light. There are people who are doing God's work, who are, you know, uh, trying to get prisoners who are falsely in, in prison out of those prisons, trying to make sure that people don't get shot in the street, trying to make people sure that people don't get choked to death in the street. That's all good stuff. But what ends up happening is that we, we, we can build a culture around what we call activism, which is actually not there's a falseness to some of the language and some of the culture and that builds its own hierarchy, builds its own exclusivity, builds its own exclusive wokeness that separates it from everybody else that they think is somehow asleep when people are basically just trying to live, (laughs) just trying to make it, you know? Yeah. And so I, and, and I do think that that becomes a very urban, Very elitist kind of a sensibility. And what we have to do is to always resist the temptation to allow allow ourselves to drift in that way, because it does sometimes become performative for white people. Some of those books that I read on the issue of race are not talking to me. You could not possibly be talking to me. Because you're not telling me anything that I don't know. Correct. You, you, you are trying to reframe this in a way that t- make make some white
0: critic or some white person in the academy go, "Wow, that's a clever way to put it." You're correct. You you, you ain't never lie about that because you know I, we had this fad over the summer that everybody would read a book and all of a sudden become de racist. Right. It was like it was like ice on a window. You read this book, you become de ice. Right? right. I mean, it was it was. It was insane, you know, and I think that what you're talking about also posed a lot of rifts in the movement itself, especially between Black Lives Matter. But we can we can uh, dissect that at, an, at another time. Um, I got one more. Well, a couple more questions about the devil, you know, another point you raise is that you don't really see these prominent black activists and thinkers emerging from the deep south. But instead, you know, they're concentrated in the north and west. Unpack that and how much of this is shaped by your sensibility as a Black man from the Deep South who sees very real gaps in activism and advocacy in the Deep South that could benefit from an influx of Black folk from other parts of the country?
2: First of all, there are activists in the South. uh, And I think that Southern culture creates a certain sensibility around that. I just think the people that we sometimes lift up are not the activists from the South because their activism may not be as full of rage. Their activism may not be you know, in the big city of New York or Chicago and stopping traffic. Their activism may be expressed in a different way, which very much in the same way that the civil rights was activism, but it was expressed in a different way than what the Panthers were doing. It was expressed mm-hmm. in a different way than what the Nation of Islam was doing, but it was its own sort of thing. They were no less active and no less brave. In fact, they were in many ways more brave because they're literally in the cave with the lion. Mm. You know, mm, and yeah. so... There is that difference in sensibility. I, I always, you know I think about it I said this in the last chapter, I believe that there's just, you know, generally speaking, there are two black Americas, the sons and daughters of the people who left, migrated and the sons and the daughters of the people who stayed. They just have a different kind of sensibility, all aiming at the same thing, want the same thing. I think there's tremendous value in reuniting those two factions because I think each can learn something from the other from the
0: other. And you, know, and, and, you and sound Southern. like me. I'm always like, cause you know, they, you know, y'all northerners, you, you're a southerner, but you, you migrated up north for a little <laughs> while. Y'all always try to look down on us southerners. And you know, we say we, we date our cousins and we backwards cause we all learn dirt roads and everything like that. And I have to remind folk that every ounce of black liberation ideology and black political power has emanated from the South. Yes, And regardless of whether or not you're in Detroit, Philadelphia, or Chicago, your grandmama from here anyway, so it don't really matter. Literally,
2: I, I tell people the exact same thing. Your Harlem Renaissance was, was fueled by
0: black girls and boys from the deep south. <laughs> exactly.
2: What are you talking
0: about? We can draw a direct line. I can tell you where you're from, uh, what part of the south you're from, by seeing what city y'all migrated to. Exactly. It's, it's so exactly. easy.
2: Because you look at the trains.
0: Exactly. So you had a passage in the book where you talked about the so-called browning of America, where black and brown folks constitute the majority of a, or plurality of Americans. But you were clear that you don't think that would necessarily be helpful to black folks because too many black and brown folks, in your view, treasure proximity to whiteness in a way that would ultimately work against the best interests of black folk. Unpack that discussion for me in the book. And why isn't the answer for black liberation more black and brown people generally?
2: Uh. Well, I, I split it a little bit more than just black and brown, saying that if I look at Hispanics, Asians, and how they voted for uh, Trump the first time around, about a third. Yeah, That number went up. This is after he's done all of his Muslim bans and separating parents from their children. What we have to understand is that anti-blackness is global. Yes, there is almost no society that, that I can find in modern times where there is some difference in the way people look, phenological difference, where the black, the darker people are not assigned the lower caste, and people come here having that baggage with them, wherever they come from, whether it's Europe or uh, Latin America or Asia. So when I see how it, it demonstrates itself. It's not necessarily a savior. And I look out, you know, uh, 25, 30 years, and I know that seven of the Southwestern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority, minority, majority Hispanic. They can see whoever they want to Congress and to the Senate. And they should. Around that same time, there will be more Asians in America than there will be black people in America.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Hawaii has always been majority Uh, Asian, South Pacific Islander, and will continue to be. They will send someone from that lineage to the Senate, as they do now. Mm -hmm. The uh, Washington, Oregon, down into the Rocky Mountain states will continue to be majority white. Not a single state is projected to be majority black. Black people have to decide if they want that power in a federalist society. Do you want state power? Mm. Because they, there's a moment coming where the, where the country is going to become more balkanized. There will be racial regions where people will will flourish. Where will yours be?
0: Yeah. There's you seven det- states det- right they now. They're going to say Detroit? <laughs> which is not a state.
2: But there are seven <laughs> states right now where white people are, are 90 plus percent of the population. There are four times as many black people in America than all seven of those states combined. Mm. Than the total population of all the seven states combined, those states control 14 Senate seats. You finally got around to being able to be the major part of the coalition that elected to. Do you want the power or not? We can stay where we are if you like the Cubs and you like the Lions and you like the Jets. You can stay where you are.
0: I don't know nobody likes but, but the Jets. Whatever. But yeah, your, your whatever. Where, whatever you it. like.
2: Yeah. But do not say. The white men who control everything won't give me freedom when you could have it on your own. Mm.
0: That's powerful. Before I let you go, I got to I got to comment on one thing. You you, uh, I got to talk about your most recent piece. I noticed we were talking about The Devil You Know, which is a dope book. I crushed it, as you can tell. I hope that you appreciate it. The fact that I actually yes, read your thank book, because you're going to do a lot of book tour <laughs> interviews and you gonna be like, you be like, nigga, did you read the book? Like, what? Like, what are you asking me? So I I hope you appreciate the fact we actually absolutely do. uh, But let's talk about your most recent piece in The Times called Avoiding the Obama Era Silence Trap. You feel like journalists didn't really hold Obama's feet to the fire. And I actually talked about this with Roland Martin. And you uh, warned against the same kind of silence taking root with Biden. But I don't think you have the same type of cultural personality with Biden that you had with Obama. So I feel like you'll have plenty of hopefully fair criticism of the Biden administration. Are you concerned that there won't be?
2: Well, I think I think uh, what I have read. Uh, people have asked, put this question to people directly, and they've answered in ways that give me hope that they won't be as quiet as they were. But when the, in those answers, they always confess that they were, in fact, <laughs> quiet, quiet than they would have been with, with Obama. And I think what we 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 always we know that these people are going to take so much incoming fire. We don't want to pile on uh and And
0: unfair i I mean unfair fire
2: yes 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 but the the problem is that that creates a vacuum where no one is pushing from well not enough people are pushing from their own side and so they only end up trying to quiet the unfair incoming fire rather than appeasing uh making good on the promises they made to the so, so I just want to make sure. I think I do feel hopefully that people won't, will not will be more vocal and more persistent
0: uh, or insistent. I think that will happen. You know, I've always told people that my two biggest disappointments in the Obama administration were Syria. You draw a red line, you keep a red line. And then HBCUs. And I thought that was very cultural. He didn't understand the import of HBCUs. And anytime I have to start the conversation with why do HBCUs matter, then this conversation ain't going to go well. So... I appreciate you, Charles Blow. You're always somebody I look up to. I love being on. We need to have more uh, BET on CNN with me, you, and Don <laughs> living on TV late at night. I hope this book, go out and buy it. The devil you know. I hope it becomes a bestseller ASAP. Thank you, my brother. Have a blessed so day. Much. All right, man. All right. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about our first guest on this show and good friend and brother and everything good. That's right. Former Houston Texan quarterback, former, I like saying that, Deshaun Watson. In case you missed it, Deshaun Watson formally requested a trade from the Houston Texans, and rightly so, after the Bill O'Brien debacle and learning that his top former target in DeAndre Hopkins was traded via social media and being told that he'd be consulted on the next GM hire only to have the team reject who their consultants recommended, including a black GM candidate in Lewis Riddick, only to hire someone else. And then in the 11th hour rush to hire a blackhead coach that I'd imagine they wouldn't have otherwise done. Former Houston Texans players like Andre Johnson have said publicly that Watson should leave. And even his own teammate, J.J. Watt, has had to apologize because he knows that the organization is wasting a generational talent. I'm not exaggerating when I say here that Deshaun and Super Bowl quarterback are the same guy, except one went to a functional organization and the other went to the Houston Texans. So the lesson here is to know your worth. A lot of us often find ourselves in roles and in organizations where people claim to value your talent, but go out of the way to keep you away from the table, making the decisions about how your talent is used. So when you see that happening, if you're able, do what Deshaun did and vote with your feet and go with where you're valued. And that's the lesson with Deshaun that I think we can all take to heart. Best of luck to him. And I'll keep checking my phone for alerts that he's officially a Carolina Panther. We will see you guys on Monday.